This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. That right there is Cypress Hill. That is the band that is going to be headlining the annual 420, and I put this in air quotes, protest at Vancouver's Sunset Beach. Yeah, when was the last time you had a protest that had a band that was headlining the whole thing, right? This prompted a lot of discussion for us. And so for the first time ever, we have a guest appearance on the hot question of the day. And that is because Global News legislative reporter Richard Zussman is the one who came up with the question today. Hi, Richard. Hi, Simi. What was on your mind? How did you come up with this? All right. So obviously, I I sent out a tweet last night about this issue. and, And, you know, you and I have talked a lot about this. This issue has been on my mind a long time around this 420 thing. Is it really a protest? You know, they set up uh, booths and tents where they sell things. Now they're going to set up a stage for a concert. I know. You know, so I was thinking, you know, is this really a protest? And then I was also thinking there's lots of other issues that people could want to protest, like the idea of drinking a beer or a cocktail or a wine on the beach. So, what band would you hire? So this is the big question. Am I allowed to reveal <laughs> Yeah, the question? you do it. You, you go for it, man. It's yours. So the big question is, what band would you hire on the beach uh, for a protest around drinking on the beach? And so you're so protesting got- the fact that you're not allowed to drink on the beach. What band would you hire to protest that? Exactly. Uh, in, in reference, obviously, to Cypress Hill, who you just played, who has been brought in, no doubt hired by the 420 group to come yeah. in and perform uh, for their big celebration on April 20th, uh, which is all. The irony being, of there's, course, that Cypress uh, Hill will get paid, right? It's not like they're not going to, they're going to pay Cypress Hill, but they won't pay the city for all the cleanup. That's exactly. just. Policing, cleanup, uh, security, like all of those costs somebody is paying for. And I, I don't think there's an issue around an event to celebrate marijuana, but there is an issue when we're stuck with the bill. And right. it's a very it's a group of people who are celebrating a cause. Okay. And so I think, you know, I'm ready to show up on the beach with my craft beer. <laughs> I just want the people to decide who are gonna watch when we show up. Okay, so who who would what band would you want? What do you pick? So I've got lots of comments on here. It's funny because I haven't even really thought about who I would like. I think Dave Matthews maybe. Like, but he could be a 420 thing also. Right. There's been a lot it, the rock genre has been really, really strong. I think um Spirit of the West. Jimmy Buffett, uh, uh, Trooper, like these are the ones that people yeah. are weighing in on my Twitter with. So I think it needs, it should be BC friendly okay. and it should be uh, available to all demographics because everybody, I think you can spread wide demographics when you're talking about uh, having a wine, a cocktail or a beer. You're so right. Well, thank you for that, Richard, because we're going to give <laughs> some of those choices right now. Okay. We'll see. Thanks, if, we'll I see can't if, wait to vote. We'll see if we can get an answer for you. Uh, Richard Zussman brings us our hot question of the day today, which is: We want to know what band would you hire for a protest against the fact that you're not allowed to have a drink on our public beaches? Heck, if they can so-called protest not being allowed to have cannabis wherever or whatever it is that they're protesting, I'm sure there's a lot of people who'd like to protest this, right? So Richard wants to know what band would you hire? Would you hire? Jimmy Buffett. Wasting away again in Margarita. I can actually picture that on Sunset Beach. I can picture Jimmy Buffett playing that song while this is going on. Or my choice personally would be Trooper.
See, that would be awesome. And that plus has a little Canadian flavor to it. And then some of somebody else suggested LMFAO. Party rock is in the house for protesting, you know, not being able to have a drink. I don't know. So you tell us those three choices or pick someone else and reply to me and let me know who you would choose. That's our hot question of the day. You can find it at SimiSarah980 on Twitter or at CKNW. You can also email me, Simi at CKNW.com or call us 604-331-BUZZ-331-2899 on our buzz line and give us your suggestion. I'm telling you right now, Jimmy Buffett's going out to an early lead on this thing. I wouldn't be surprised to see Jimmy Buffett win. I am really rooting for Trooper on this, or maybe you've got a better suggestion. Well, BC MLAs are getting a pay raise. They get one every year. They don't vote on it. We know what kinds of problems that causes, but it is indexed to the rate of inflation, so it's automatic. That means provincial politicians will get 2.7% increase this year. But that's raising eyebrows among public sector workers. So let's find out why. Rob Shaw has written about this in the Vancouver Sun. The legislative correspondent joins us now. Hi, Rob. Hi, Simi. Okay, so why is this causing such a concern? Well, it's a bit, um, I guess, problematic for the new Democrat government because they have been very militant on holding a certain line when it comes to the pay raises they're going to offer all the public sector workers here in B.C. So nurses and correctional officers... Uh, even doctors, although that's a bit of a different issue, but social workers, the the civil service here, there's two to 300,000 people who are in the public sector who have contracts with government, and the government's been negotiating all these deals, and they've said very clearly the province can only afford a 2% annual wage increase to public sector workers. And then you have MLAs getting a 2.7% increase And uh, some of those public sector workers, including ones who haven't signed deals with the government, are grumbling about that and saying, well, that doesn't seem fair. Because the argument the MLAs are using is we're just going to increase our pay automatically every year at the cost of inflation so that we can, you know, uh, keep up with the economy. The cost of inflation is the base level that MLAs should, should have. So how come other workers are being told to take pay increases that are actually below the rate of inflation. And that's kind of the, the core of the pushback and the and the frustration some people are feeling with these numbers. Right. Because we know that a lot of these public sector unions have signed their contracts, but there's still some big ones to come, right? Yeah. The BC Teachers is one of the biggest ones. And now obviously that is a complicated contract because of all of the past history, um, you know, with teachers and the provincial government, the Supreme Court of Canada decision, Um, I mean, it is a different government. It's an NDP government, and I think the teachers are hoping for a better deal. But when you talk to New Democrats here, including cabinet ministers, they're very clear. They want the teachers to come in at the 2% range as well. So they want them to sign the same deal the other unions have signed, two, two, and two wage increases over three years. That's the contract. And the teachers are saying, look, we're already suffering from recruitment problems here. It's hard to get teachers. The sub-lists are decimated French immersion and, uh, is a, is a yeah. problem in recruitment. We need more wages, and the government's saying we can't afford that. We can only afford to give you 2%. So the teachers are looking at the MLA pay increase and saying, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. How can you afford to pay politicians more but not teachers? And it becomes one of those hard-to-argue points for Finance Minister Carol James when she's trying to explain it. And I'm sure a lot of these unions also thought that by having an NDP government in place, they might get more than 2%. 
Yeah, and I guess to the NDP government's credit that they've held the line. Um, every 1% uh, increase in pay for the public sector is more than $300 million in costs to taxpayers. So it adds up really quick when you start doing wage increases. And the government has created this mandate. They've said, look, we have to balance our budget. We can only afford 2% a year. Everyone's got to take it. Now, it, it gets even more complicated because some of these deals with the public sector unions have had kind of um, lucrative kind of side pots of money. So the doctors, they did sign a deal for 2% a year, but they also got this special 2.8% extra amount for business expenses. Right. And they get a, a $7,500 bonus for business expenses. And the nurses did sign a 2% deal, but they have a special clause in their contract where they can get up to $5 more an hour if the vacant nursing jobs aren't filled and they're having to scramble with a bunch of vacancies. So I think teachers want that kind of deal. I think government is saying, look, even though MLAs are getting paid more, we can find a way on the side to offer you some perks and bonuses, but you have to stay at 2%, which is a very important number for government. And so it's it's a lot of kind of jockeying and negotiating yeah. and optics, and the optics aren't good uh, for for a lot of people looking at what MLAs get. So is this like the new kind of sinus bo- signing bonus where they have all these other little deals on the side? Yeah, yeah, and it's called... It's, what the New Democrats are describing it is, is we have to be fiscally responsible on the pay, but we also need to put money back into uh, services to make them sustainable. So they're willing to put money into programs and services, money into side pots. If I was to guess, I would say the teachers will end up with a deal that's 2% a year, but with a massive amount of money, hundreds of millions of dollars on the side for um, learning conditions, classroom conditions, substitute lists. Uh, you know, incentives if you need to go to rural parts of British Columbia where it's hard to recruit teachers, bonuses for French immersion, you know, that's how they'll get around the 2% cap. But at its base level of pay, it looks like MLAs are outpacing everybody else. And, you know, side deals aside, they are. That is so interesting because I remember anytime you give any kind of politician a raise, Rob, it's like a huge deal, right? We saw what happened with Metro Vancouver politicians. Is there a way around that by saying, listen, we didn't vote on this. Like this is, we're hands off. Yeah, well, I mean, (laughs) it it has, you mentioned off the top, like the history of MLA pay raises is so contentious. It was 2007 that Gordon Campbell decided MLAs needed a pay raise of in the mid-20s. It was going to be almost 50% for him as premier. And it turned into a mess here. Carol James, who's now finance minister, was the NDP leader at the time. The NDP wanted the pay raise but didn't want it. They wanted to take it, but they'd, some MLAs didn't want to take it. They were going to donate it to charity. It was a huge kerfuffle. And all the parties, after that political drama, quietly agreed, look, let's just make it the rate of inflation every year, automatic, independence. That's it. And that works to a certain extent. I don't think we want to fight politicians fighting every year about their pay. No. But it is a problem for governments that, that want to hold a line at one level while recognizing that in their own pockets, they have a much higher rate of inflation, the higher cost of living that they need. And I think that's something perhaps the finance minister didn't fully anticipate when she created this bargaining mandate. I don't think New Democrats are happy that the rate of inflation is 2.7%, they'd probably be happy it's 2% and they get the same. But And the other thing to keep in mind is most of these union deals come with what are called Me Too clauses. Right. So if someone did manage, like the teachers managed to negotiate a 3% pay raise, 
all the other unions would get it. That's the Me Too clause. But nobody thought to put in a Me Too clause for the politicians, so, which I guess they probably couldn't have done anyway. So all these Me Too clauses are great, except that the politicians, you know, they get to do their own thing. So the unions can't really use that as justification for huh. arguing a higher wage. That is so interesting. All right, Rob, thanks so much for explaining it to us. Okay, take care. That's Rob Shaw, legislative correspondent with the Vancouver Sun. So we were just talking with Rob Shaw at the Vancouver Sun about the increase in wages for MLAs that are coming up for this year. They don't vote on it. We know how troublesome that is when politicians vote on their own raises. That ended about 10, well, I guess, yeah, 10 years ago now. Uh, Essentially, it's pegged to the rate of inflation, which means that they'll see about a 2.7% increase. Uh, That is an increase of almost $3,000 over their salary from last year. Meanwhile, most employees of the public sector will see a 2% wage increase. And as Rob Shaw was telling us, that's causing a lot of discussion about whether or not that is fair. And there's some unions that have yet to negotiate their deals. One of them is the BC Teachers Federation and the president, Glenn Hansman, joins us now. Glenn, thanks for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Where are negotiations at? Oh, well, we started. Uh, negotiations began at the end of uh, February. They've continued through the month of uh, March. The teams are meeting today. And collective agreement that's currently in place expires at the end of June. So there's there's lots of time to reach a deal, and we feel optimistic about that. Um, but we posted this story on our Facebook uh, page this morning, and there's a lot of angry face comments that are on there just simply because um, there's an awful lot of workers in BC, both in the private sector and the public sector, who are definitely not seeing their wages tied to inflation. And yet all of us um, live side-by-side with MLAs, and they come to our doors seeking support during election period. And, look, we all have to pay our bills, and BC is incredibly expensive. So, you know, it would be great to have a conversation how all workers in BC, regardless of the sector, should at least see wage increases of inflation, if not more. What are the priorities, then, for the BCTF in this round of negotiations? What's really critical to work on? Well, there's a lot of gaps in terms of the language that was restored by the court two and a half years ago. We had been seeking for a long time to get back our right to negotiate class size and class composition, and we had been speaking for months before bargaining opened to look at school districts like West Vancouver that teachers there and the students don't have similar protections around class size and class composition. So we're very motivated to fill some of those holes, but... The teacher shortage in this province uh, and the one that exists in some of the other sectors, too, is only going to be corrected if we address how people are are paid, and not just here in the Lower Mainland, but in the interior and in the Peace region, where school districts are awfully reliant on people who've already retired to be casual workers or relying on people who don't have teaching certificates at all. The reality is, as long as... Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Ontario and the territories pay way more for teachers on an annual basis in terms of salary at the bottom end and the top end, we're going to continue to have shortages, and that needs to be corrected. I don't, I'm not uh, you know, going to sort of uh, expect that this be completely fixed in right. any one round of bargaining, but we at least have to see a significant step in that direction. So it's a bit distressing to find out that MLAs, who are, in, in one sense, the employer, the boss, are, are getting a wage increase tied to inflation in the ballpark of 2.7, but nothing like that is on offer to any public sector work in the province, and uh, 
you know, my partner works in the private sector. He's certainly not getting an increase like right. that. And I have lots of friends that work in the private sector and they're not seeing anything like that either. Would you like to see some incentives as well? I was talking to Rob Shaw about that of, of you know, providing incentives for more rural teachers or bonuses for, you know, getting training as a French immersion teacher, that kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. There's been lots of things done like that in the past, but there isn't really anything systematized right now. And so I think we have to look at opportunities to take the current workforce and be able to say, okay, look, we're really desperate for counselors and French immersion teachers, or in a particular region of the province, maybe we need more teachers with specialized special education. And so what can we do, like they do in health, like they do in engineering and architecture, um, pay for people to go back to school and get additional qualifications, not just like a one-off workshop here and there, but actual credentials in some of those areas. But I think we also have to be looking at things like student loan forgiveness programs, um, setting people up with housing, look at more opportunities to create sort of below market housing or at least subsidies for people if, um, if people are willing to commit to stay in a community for a little while, because there's no sense going to Toronto to do a recruitment fair and, and try to get somebody uh, from there to move and take a teaching job in Fort St. John if that person's only going to stick around for six months. Right. Once they figure out that they could be paid upwards of $15,000 more per year by simply going to the next community across the Alberta-BC border. And, but you, uh, we want people to commit and stay and, and get to know the community and build relationships with students and, and parents. You mentioned uh, you know, going to Toronto. There's been some speculation that there will be a lot of applications or movement west of teachers from Ontario because of the climate there right now. Do you think that's possible? Oh, well, possibly, um, except there are lots of teaching jobs available in the other Western provinces and in Yukon and Northwest Territories, and all those jurisdictions pay more. And so people might leave Ontario and and head west, but they might not move as far west as British Columbia. There's a lot of school districts in Alberta and Manitoba that are also um, going to job fairs in Ontario and some of the other provinces, trying to get teachers from those provinces to come to the Prairie provinces, and uh, they pay way more starting wages. So if I'm that new teacher in Ontario with a student debt to pay off, and uh, I'm thinking about maybe starting a family and worried about finding a place to live, I might consider British Columbia, um, but I might be also looking at some of those um, other communities. And so uh, everyone weighs things differently. I moved here from Montreal, and I, as an individual, was extremely motivated to move to British Columbia for a variety of reasons. But at the time, salaries were pretty comparable, and so it wasn't, um, that wasn't a factor. Now there's a gulf in terms of what starting wages look like, and at, at the top of the scale, uh, there's a problem too. But like I said, you know, if, if uh, it looks like the public sector agreements that are being reached are in the range of three years, and, and clearly that gap can't be rectified in one fell swoop, but we have to make some significant headway, and there's, there are ways of doing that um, because this can't continue for another five, ten mm-hmm. years, and, and kids need to have qualified certified teachers working with them, regardless of where they're living in the province. Well, you sound like you're optimistic, though. You said the deal ends at the end of June. That's a couple of months away. You feel like it can get done. Well, there's no reason why it, it, it shouldn't get done. Uh, if, if there's some obstacles that are put on the table, those will need to be worked through. I, I feel positive about the fact that we, there's so many days scheduled, but there has to be a willingness to actually resolve some of these long-standing issues, mm-hmm. or at least a, a, a 
a reasonable number of them um, and then park some for the for the next time and then be prepared to sort of get in there and start working on those in the short term. But I was a bit horrified, um, you know, not surprised because we know what the rules are, but to sort of see um, when we have tabled in the past uh, proposals to have wages tied to inflation and when we've had those rebuffed or where it's been implied that somehow that's asking for too much or being greedy, that uh, MLAs continue to get that and, and, and justify it for the same reasons that we've attempted right. to justify it in the past. And I think it's a conversation that British Columbians, it's a fair one for British Columbians to sort of scratch their heads and ask, why is this okay when we're not seeing anything similar for ourselves? Well, Glenn, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. That is Glenn Hansman, the president of the BC Teachers Federation. Well, there's been more gun violence in Surrey, and this is a story that I know we've talked a lot about over the last, you know, five or six years, but especially in the last week or so, we've seen an increase in this as well. Uh, this time, we see a man was shot dead in a townhouse complex near 72nd and 139th. And this happened to be about two blocks from the home of Surrey Councillor Doug Alford, who is someone who has complained a lot over the years about the violence in Surrey and criticized the previous council for their uh, supposed lack of action on this issue. So how did he respond this time around, hearing that this one was so close to his house? Well, to talk more about this, we're joined now by Janet Brown, our Global News senior reporter. Hi, Janet. Good morning, Simi. How are you? Thanks for having me here. I am good. Thank you. So I find this one so interesting because, you know, Doug Elford was pretty much the first person to speak up, you know, a couple of years ago when there was crime and violence in the community. Absolutely. Many, many times over the years, Simi, before he was elected, Doug Elford would be the first person that CKNW News would talk to uh, after some sort of violent act in the city of Surrey or a shooting. And he always, always called for more boots on the ground by the RCMP. And he says that more boots on the ground are coming with a new civic police force. But what is interesting is that when he had an opportunity, along with other members of Surrey City Council in the fall to add more boots on the ground for the Surrey RCMP, Mr. Elford voted no. Uh, It was proposed that Surrey Council add 12 more RCMP officers this year to the ranks of the Surrey RCMP, but Mr. Elford said no because the thinking on council is because the new civic police force they assume is coming online, if the Solicitor General says yes, uh, that they will add more members to that civic force but for now, they don't want to add any more to the RCMP. Uh, I had a very interesting conversation yesterday with Mr. Elford about more boots on the ground, crime in general in Surrey, and what he's hoping to see with a new civic police force. And here is more of what he had to say in that interview, Simi. Well, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed that it's, it's, it seems to have reared its head again in the community. Um, this was close to my house again, this last one, and, and it, it, it brings back the fact that the reality is that it, it, this is a problem in our community, and it, it, it seems to be like five years on now that we're, we're dealing with the same issues over and over again. Doug, many times, uh, you know, when you and I would chat about a shooting or a situation in Surrey, you would call for more boots on the ground. And council has had that opportunity to put more boots on the ground and decided not to. Uh, so what do you say about that? Well, I think um, what we're going to be um, looking at is a different model um, 
very soon where we will have the ability to to get more boots on the ground and 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 change the way we govern the way we go about doing things and i'm optimistic that we will be able we will be able to address this with more boots on the ground, hopefully uh, it will push back against the violence or people thinking about committing violent acts in Surrey? I think we have to look at a, a different way of how we we're managing this problem that we've got in our, in our community. And, um, and it could be uh, uh, maybe different ways of how we police. And you're probably well aware that I, I am a proponent of our own force. And I think once we have our own force established, I think we can possibly address this better. And how would how how would things change with our own Surrey police force? Well, I think we have to look at uh, how we govern our governance model. I think uh, having our own police board will enable us to have uh, more flexibility with our staff and our police force. In terms of deployment and that sort of thing? Well, that would be up to the new chief. Okay, I'm, I'm just trying to understand how, how things would be different compared to the RCMP. I'm, I'm really not clear on that. I'm, I'm not going to get into a, a debate on it now, uh, Janet. It'll all come uh, to fruition once we establish our force and, and move forward. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting a debate, but I'm just trying to understand in my own mind how things would, would be different with uh, the Surrey Police Department versus the RCMP, but you'd rather not go down that path right now? No, right now, Janet. I've got to see that I've got to see the plan. I've got to get a, you know, we've got to see what the what the we we've got to see well, we've got to get our, everything in order. So what we have to do, Janet. I'm not really prepared to talk about it right now. Okay, that is so interesting, Janet, because this is somebody <laughs> who was voted in because of criticisms about how the previous council was not transparent, didn't do enough, and now he's just saying, wait, 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 and I don't know what the plan entirely is. Well, what I find interesting in what he says there, too, uh, he says, I've got to see the plan. So is he saying he hasn't seen the plan yeah. for a civic force? And, you know, I'm running into this more and more. The city councillors have not seen the plan. They have not seen this report going to the Solicitor General. And how possibly could they support this if they don't know what's in it? That's what I don't understand. And and Mr. Elford talks about different ways of policing. Well, what does he mean by that? Uh, flexibility with staff. What does he mean by that? And I just got the impression that either he, A, isn't willing to share what he knows, or he doesn't know. And if he doesn't know, why that's doesn't he? really surprising and shocking. Yeah, yeah, why doesn't he? And how can you support something that you have not seen? I, I just it just doesn't make sense to me, uh, and I'm sure it doesn't make sense to you either, Simi. There's a lot no. of, of unanswered <laughs> questions here, and I think if people ask us, like, okay, well, why why center on Doug Elford with all of this? And it, it is because of what you said at the beginning there, and that is because. In the past, when there was any kind of a shooting, any kind of violence in Surrey, he was the first person, you know, to contact and, and want to talk about this. Absolutely. And he was the first person, like I said, to call for more boots on the ground, which means more RCMP officers, um, not necessarily driving around in their cars, but, you know, 
on the ground in the communities walking around a visible presence and and for him to vote no to adding more RCMP officers last year when council had that opportunity you know it just doesn't it just doesn't make sense and i understand not hiring more RCMP officers right now if they are transitioning to a civic force but right now we don't even know if the solicitor general is going to say yes to a municipal police force in Surrey. And every month, the city of Surrey is gaining over a thousand new people to the community who are moving in. And the same time, the police force, the number of people on the police force is remaining stagnant. And we've said it many times before, and I've heard it from some RCMP members in Surrey. There, there comes a tipping point where it will be difficult to ever catch up, Simi. As yeah. the population grows, the number of RCMP members remains the same. At just about 850 or just below that, it's hard to ever catch up. And so these are concerning times, absolutely, and lots of unanswered questions still. And uh, somebody else I spoke to yesterday, too, briefly here, Simi, uh, Bruce Hain, a familiar name. He ran to be mayor as well uh, last fall, but lost, of course, to Doug McCallum. He's a former city councillor, and he feels that this whole process moving towards a civic force is going the wrong way. He says it's just not right what's happening. And he feels that uh, an independent third party should have been brought in from the outset to do a report for council to outline exactly what the transition costs will be, the ongoing operating costs of a civic force compared to the current RCMP model, so that council had some information in front of it uh, before going ahead. At least yeah. it had some information to base a decision on. All right. More to come on this. Janet, thank you. Thank you, Simi. That is Janet Brown, Global News senior reporter, reporting on the latest violence from Surrey, uh, just a couple blocks away from Surrey Councillor Doug Elford's house. It's pretty big news, right, to hear that the Squamish Nation is planning on building a large new development on their land at the south end of the Burrard Street Bridge. We're talking 3,000 units, rental units, not condos for sale. So naturally, there are a lot of questions like, what will this look like? What about public consultation? If it were a City of Vancouver project, there would have to be consultation, but this isn't a city project. So what's going to happen on this site? To get some more of the details on this, we are joined by Hasilam, a Squamish Nation Council member. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Uh, first of all, can you give us an idea of, of what this project is going to entail? What's it going to look like? Yeah, I mean, some of those details are still to be determined. Um, we're quite early on, but we're definitely imagining the project is largely rental housing um, and probably, you know, some form of density in the area, but um, we definitely see it as a, a largely rental project. Yeah, and why is that? Why the focus on rental? Um, well, for the Squamish Nation, the reason that we're doing a project like this is because we have a lot of needs to serve our, our people, our community, um, and a lot of challenges that we face um, around education and around healthcare, around other types of social services. And so... This project is economic development for us, and so when we look at it from that perspective, a long-term annual revenue generator um, makes sense to us as a long-term um, kind of investment, because we're going to be here for the long run. Um, we want to invest in our communities, and rental makes the most sense to meet that objective. And so how many units are we potentially talking about here? Um, some of that's to be determined. It's, it's still based off of some work that needs to be done on the site in, in terms of transportation and uh, transit and, and other infrastructure needs. Um, but there's been talk of around 3,000 units or uh, give or take. Oh, 3,000 units. Okay. And so this, can you give us an idea of exactly where this is? I know it's at the foot of the Burrard Bridge, but what area does it encompass? 
Yeah, so the the area is on both sides of the Broad Bridge on the south side. Um, it's kind of a vacant lot right now. There's just a billboard on it. Um, it sits next to the Balsam Brewery site, and then there's the Venue Park uh, and some trees um, uh, to the west. Um, and so it's right kind of on the water. Um, and it's a bit of an odd shape, but uh, it's 11.7 acres right at the south of the bridge. Okay, so w- what kind of timeline do we anticipate for this? Well, our first step is that we're going to be going to our members of the Squamish Nation uh, and presenting a business terms and a clear project proposal uh, and going to our members for consent um, through a referendum to ask them for their support for us to move forward on this. And so um, over the next few months, we'll be preparing all the information to present to our community uh, and then holding a referendum and asking for their support. If they are in support, uh, we'll move forward to next stages. Um, and There's still lots of work to happen on service agreements, uh, design, uh, financing, and then eventually construction. So we're still a little bit of ways away, yeah. um, but, but uh, that's where we're at right now. It's so interesting. So what is your relationship like then with City Hall, with City of Vancouver? How is that going to work? Yeah, the Squamish Nation uh, prides itself on having a very strong relationship with the City of Vancouver. We signed a, a memorandum of understanding and protocol agreement with the city over almost nearly 10 years ago, and we worked with them on a number of projects. So we feel like the relationship is quite strong. Um, they've been, we've had initial conversations with them about this project. Um, and so we're going to continue that relationship to, you know, work with them as uh, on this and, and include them in, in terms of the process. Okay. So normally if this, if this was like a, a city of Vancouver project, there'd have to be a lot of public consultation. What is your process like for that? Well, the, the fact on the ground is that the land is federal land owned by the Squamish Nation. And so the city of Vancouver and the city council have no jurisdiction over the land in terms of zoning or bylaws and things like that. Uh, whereas the Squamish Nation council has exclusive control uh, in the members. Uh, and so we're going to be working with them to figure out what kind of process um, makes sense um, for the neighborhood and for the community and the broader public uh, and how we might um, do that kind of work to, to you know, create an opportunity for people to be included in, in the proposed plans. Yeah, will there be a chance for people who live nearby to weigh in on, you know, design or that kind of thing? Yeah, I think we're definitely open to that. Interesting. Okay, so we're talking years away from this actually happening. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, this is a big step then, isn't it, for Squamish Nation to, to do this, to take on something of this size? It, it very much is. We've been very passive revenue generators on our lands, mostly on the North Shore with uh, other projects like Park Royal or international plaza where they're largely been leased land um uh, where a developer has come in and built it but they're just paying rent to us whereas this is envisioned as a true partnership but it's interesting to think about um the role that the squamish nation has played in the region because a lot of those developments and the density um, that was built in the north shore around park royal and around west van and uh, lower capilano road uh, a lot of those were built 30 40 years ago um, the towers the office rental so on and so forth and so you know the, the North Shore is now finally, 40 years later, starting to densify, whereas uh, 40 years ago, we were at the forefront of that. And so I see that there's an opportunity for the Squamish Nation to play a leadership role in the region um, and hopefully look at ways to help um, the city of Vancouver as well, because um, something that I've noted uh, previously is that in the last 29 years, the city of Vancouver has only built close to 4,000 rental units, uh, whereas the Squamish Nation is pl- uh, proposing to build 3,000. So we're almost nearly doubling it. Uh, just from one project alone. It's going to be amazing then. So have you got an idea of what the the rent is going to cost? Is this going to be affordable? Is this going to be some luxury units? Like what's that mix going to be? Um, a lot of those are still to be determined. Um, it'll be based off of a number of factors, including you know, how many units we put on the site, what kind of finance we get, 
um, the constructability and all that kind of stuff. So we're still far away from estimating on that. All right. A lot to come on this one. Listen, thank you so much for joining us to explain it. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. That is Asilam, a Squamish Nation Council member, describing what we know so far. You know, we like to sometimes bring you stories of kind of revolutionary firsts that we see in this country, particularly when it comes to our healthcare system. And we have a good one for you right now. St. Paul's Hospital is introducing this new maternity positioning band, and it's the first of its kind in Canada. So what makes it so special? Why is it so unique? That's what we're going to find out right now with the help of Scott Harrison, who is the director for the Maternity Centre at St. Paul's here in Vancouver. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us, Scott. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Simi. What is so special about this maternity positioning band? Well, many women who um, give birth by cesarean section um, have epidurals and um, intravenous lines into the back of their hands. And that can cause problems with us having safe skin-to-skin contact in those essential few hours after delivery. The, the Joey band that we use, this um, positioning sling, um, has really transformed the way that we're able to put babies into direct skin-to-skin contact with their mom as soon as they're born in the OR. So babies are securely and comfortably held against mom, um, and it doesn't matter if she can't move her arms too much or is still recovering from her epidural. The baby is quite safely secured on her chest um, and is allowing that really important initial bonding to occur. Okay, this is so nice then, because of what was happening before now, Scott, is it that women who had C-sections just didn't have that skin-to-skin contact? We, are, we did try always to put skin-to-skin contact in, but many women felt quite uncomfortable that maybe they were going to drop their infant or the infant would slide. So this provides both mom and baby with that secure feeling. Um, for the baby, it's very womb-like. It's, um, you know, it's a bit of a shock to be lifted out um, with a cesarean section. So to go straight back into contact with mum and have that secure feeling behind them helps the baby to settle and get snuggled into mum and helps with bonding. Oh, this sounds like such a nice idea. So what is this thing? What is this Joey band? So the Joey band is a really lovely, breathable, stretchable fabric that secures with Velcro down one side of the body. Uh, We put it on in the operating room as soon as the cesarean section is done. Um, It's minimal impact on mum. What we've found from our uh, patients is that they find wearing it very comfortable and because it's stretchy and breathable it's good for baby there's no overheating involved we're able to position the baby in a really lovely way so it's airways nice and open but it's there on mum's chest which encourages milk supply and milk production and gets the baby nice and settled it regulates their heart rate their breathing um, and it's a lovely simple piece of equipment that can transform maternity care. Oh, wow. This sounds really nice then for new new moms here because uh, the C-section takes, a, 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 and I know birth in general is a terrible toll on a woman's body, but so the C-section particularly so, especially right after. That's right. Um, cesarean section is major abdominal surgery at the end of the day. Um, um, it's done for a reason. We know that it's a, a very safe way for many babies to come into this world. Um, but there are implications for mum. She has to recover from surgery. But we don't want her to miss out on those essential first few hours of welcoming her infant and, and having the ability to bond. And I know that the rates for C-section are pretty high here in Canada. Are we doing things to try to change that? We are. We're encouraging um, more physiological birth, which is um, encouraging women to have good positioning, have things like 
non-interventional pain relief, like sterile water injections, um, and working with women to be more mobile during labor. But for some women, particularly those with medical complications, C-section is the safest way for them and their baby to deliver. Oh, I know. That was me. I remember that. But I also remember that back then, because this was a long time ago, Scott, um, they didn't have that skin-to-skin. There wasn't such a priority on having that skin-to-skin contact. What, what do we know about that and how important it is? There's been so much research done over the last um, decade into skin-to-skin contact. And we know that um, having the baby close to their parent, whether it be mum or dad, helps the baby to bond um, it, certainly for women who want to breastfeed, it really encourages the oxytocin hormone to be released in the mum's brain, which stimulates breast milk supply. Um, and it regulates the baby's temperature. It regulates their breathing. And it's really introducing the baby into the world in a very natural and calming way, rather than um, separating it from mum and, and kind of wrapping it up as what how it used to be done. Yeah, We know that being very present and being on mum is the most important thing in the first hours after life. Okay, so St. Paul's is going to be the first hospital to offer this. When does that start? We are already offering this. We're the first hospital in Canada to use it in our operating room. Other hospitals are using it in their NICUs and postpartum areas. But we're the first ones who have actually uh, done the trial and uh, we now put it on directly in the operating room so we don't lose any time at all after cesarean section. That sounds so lovely. That must be having quite an impact. It is having a great impact and mums find it really comforting um, and have found this particular product really comfortable to use as well. That is so lovely. So does it, like when you see that difference between allowing a mom to have that skin to skin contact, what does that do for her as well in terms of dealing with postpartum and other issues? It's it's very empowering. Um, Babies need to be with their mom um, and they need to have as little interference um, from us as healthcare providers as possible. Once we know baby's safe and mum is safe, then it's really working on our kind of natural instincts and drives and helping mum to bond with her infant, protect her infant, um, and then hopefully successfully feed her infant as well. All right, this sounds like such a great idea. Do you expect to have this spread, Scott, to other hospitals as well? We are hoping so. And there are many, many hospitals across Canada now that are working towards more baby-friendly initiatives like this. Um, So we hope to see this take off everywhere. Oh, it sounds great. Scott, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks, Simi. That is Scott Harrison, the director for the Maternity Centre at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver. Let's bring you up to date on a story that we first brought you yesterday. Representatives of refugees and their advocates are expressing concern over proposed changes to asylum laws in this country. Lawyers and advocates, in fact, call it a, quote, devastating attack. There, uh, these are amendments to asylum laws that involve preventing asylum seekers from making refugee claims in Canada if they have made claims in certain other countries, such as the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, the U.K. Border Security Minister Bill Blair has said that the changes will prevent what he calls asylum shopping. Well, we spoke yesterday with Janet Dench, who's the executive director at the Canadian Council for Refugees, and she explained to us how she believes these laws would disproportionately affect uh, poorer asylum seekers. Uh, one comment that uh, I saw made, which I think is quite interesting, is how uh, partly it relates to people's means and people who are poorer, uh, people from Central America or people who have very uh, limited means often enter the United States through the southern border and make their way through the United States and very often have no choice uh, but uh, to interact with the immigration officials at some point and probably 
actually have to make a refugee claim, even though they're planning all the time to come to Canada, whereas uh, more wealthy people um, may be more likely to get a visa as a tourist to to enter the United States and uh, be able to safely come up to the Canadian border to make a claim without having passed through the the U.S. uh, uh, refugee system or having to interact with it. And so it's a measure that potentially will uh, particularly affect uh, uh, people who have less means. All right, so that is Janet Dent. She's the executive director at the Canadian Council for Refugees. We wanted to talk more about this, get more of an idea of what is in this and what the purpose is. So joining us now is Bill Blair, the Minister of Border Security and Organized Crime Reduction. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Simi. What did you think about what Janet Dent there had to say, that she believes that this could disproportionately affect uh, asylum seekers who don't have money? There's a couple of things that I'm happy to have the opportunity to clarify. First of all, I think it's a very well-established principle. It's an international principle and and completely consistent with the international conventions of asylum primacy, in which people are encouraged, who are in need of protection and and are seeking asylum, to make that claim at their first opportunity, and and, and that is normally the first safe country at which they arrive. What we've seen over the past, uh, you know, two years, is that there is a number of people who have been residing in the United States, someone on average between one and five years. Um, they've been living there, they've had children there, they've been working there, and, and they've made asylum claims in the United States, and then they've subsequently come to Canada. And, and what we want to do is in, encourage people to pursue their asylum claim in the first country in which they arrived. And, and the measures that we're talking about are, are I, I think it's important to understand, we're making very significant investments as a government in increasing the capacity of the Immigration Refugee Board to to conduct the, the, the important hearings that need to take place to determine a person's eligibility. We know there's a number of, of people who really do need protection that have come to, to Canada and they're stuck in a very long queue. And, yeah. and, and it's, I think it's important that we be able to deal with their, their claims as quickly as possible. And, and another thing I, I, I think needs to be very carefully articulated is that regardless of, of how they've come to this country, no one will be removed before they have the benefit of the uh, pre removal risk assessment. And that's that's a process that is conducted in, 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 with the benefit of a lawyer and and, a, and, a, and according to well-established principles. And if a person, any person, is determined to be at risk, they will receive protection. So we're not going to put anyone in jeopardy through this. Right. What we're trying to do is encourage people to, to, first of all, enter the country appropriately at a regular point of entry, to make their applications properly. And, and for those who are truly in need of protection, we want to make sure that we have a system that is fair and accessible and efficient for those individuals who do need our protection. Canada remains a welcoming country to those individuals. We're proud of our history and, and, and proud of the tradition in this country of, of providing asylum to those who truly need it. But we also have a responsibility to, to manage that system in a way that maintains confidence of Canadians that, that is efficient and, and, and gives those who need protection as quick an opportunity to receive that protection and get on with their lives. Is there a way then to differentiate between those who have, as you put it, like started to establish a life in another country and then apply for status here and those who are just passing through that country to get to Canada? Yes, and, 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 and quite frankly, part of that is, is conducted through the, the pre-removal risk assessment. And, and, and if a person is deemed to be in protection, you know, we do not remove them from this country. We provide them with that protection. But we want to encourage people, uh, you know, in, consistent with that principle, which, which you know, m- many safe countries in the world have adopted, that to encourage refugee claimants, those who seek asylum, to make that claim 
at the first available opportunity, and 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 that is normally in the first safe country to which they've arrived, um, and 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 we deal with these individuals on a case by case basis. But we do have seen um, a number of people who, you know, quite frankly, we also have a very robust and and well functioning immigration system, and it's, it's another very something that we're very proud of in this country. And I want to encourage people who are seeking to emigrate to this country to get in the immigration line, and and we will do everything we can to assist them because the country benefits tremendously from from the, those immigrants that come to make a life and help build a better Canada. And for those who are fleeing persecution and war and, and terror, we want to make sure that they have access to, to a, a, a well-functioning system that is able to determine um, th- their eligibility for that protection and then to move forward as quickly as possible with assisting them in, in receiving, receiving that protection and getting on with their lives. And for those who perhaps are in the wrong line, and, and then we also need to deal with that in an expeditious way, we're trying to keep this, make the system work for, right. for everyone who needs protection. We're making significant investments. It's not just a, a matter of, of of discouraging people from from you know perhaps making a claim for asylum when they when they don't require it. It is it is in fact we're making significant investment to make the system work more efficiently for those who do, do need protection. But, and I think we've we've we've, we've, we can, we've got a you know very strong record in in providing that that protection for people who need it. Well, let me ask you then: Why do this now? Then why insert it into a budget bill and not have it as a standalone bill? Well, and, and I can tell you, a, a number of these measures required funding. And, and for example, establishing a new uh, pre-removal risk assessment process requires the hiring of significant additional staff. We're also making very significant inv- investments in a number of other areas to improve the efficiency and the effectiveness of our refugee asylum claim system, including substantial investments in, in the new Immigration Re- Review Board uh, to make sure that they have adequate resources to do these to deal with the backlog and to deal with these claims in a a timely manner. As part of all of those initiatives, you know, in all of the measures required, uh, new investments in budget 2019. And so we're very clear, I think, in in our budget document when we published it a few weeks ago to say these are the investments we're making and significantly enhancing and improving the efficiency and the effectiveness of our immigration review system. Um, And and it requires these investments and it requires some regulatory and legislative change in order to support those investments. And and so in in, in my opinion, they, they are quite consistent and compatible with each other. All right. Has this become a problem? I mean, we hear stories of what's happening along certain parts of our border, but how much of a concern has this become? And is that why you're doing this? Yeah, I, I, I can tell you something that we've, we've been working hard um, to make sure that we have a system that where, where people come to Canada and truly are in need of our protection, they have access to, to due process and the supports that they need as they go through those due processes. And we've been working with the province of British Columbia, with, with Ontario, with Quebec, with Manitoba, and with, with municipalities right across the country to make sure people are well supported as they go through those processes. And at the same time, we have tried to, to address the issue of people who are crossing into our border, crossing our borders irregularly and and perhaps have 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 come in um, seeking a better life which is which is a perfectly legitimate reason to emigrate but does not necessarily qualify them for asylum we want to make sure that those who require our protection those who truly are in need of that protection and eligible therefore for asylum from Canada have have quick and, and efficient access to that protection and for others who perhaps um, have 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 
got in the wrong line or, or are not in, in need of that protection, we want to make sure, first of all, to, to, to make sure that they're well informed, right. that, that, that crossing irregularly is not a free ticket in, into citizenship. Um, but at the same time, they have to cl- have a clear understanding of what the rules are. Um, we want to make sure that those rules work for everyone. And But the one thing, I, Simi, I want to assure everyone, we will yeah. never compromise on our responsibility. If someone is in need of protection, they will receive that protection from Canada. Minister Blair, thank you very much for your time on this. Thank you, ma'am. That is Bill Blair, the Minister of Border Security and Organized Crime Reduction. And now we're going to do something completely different, something we really actually haven't done on the show before. Uh, This is going to be just so fascinating. You're in for a treat, actually. We are talking about a group that is also from right here in Vancouver and another group that not so much. Uh, Corleone, you've probably heard of. It's one of the most active amateur ensembles in North America. Uh, It performs more than 35 concerts a season to more than 15,000 people who come to check them out. Well, tomorrow night, Corleone is helping to host the Van Man Male Choral Summit. It's happening at the Chan Center for Performing Arts. It's going to be an amazing evening. We actually have some tickets to give away, so stay tuned for your chance to win. By the time we finish this segment, you're not going to be able to race to your phone fast enough to try to get these tickets. Uh, at the event, there's going to be a special debut performance uh, by a group called Cantus. They're an eight-man ensemble. They have flown all the way from Minneapolis to be with us today, and... They almost didn't make it because of the weather, but they are here. We have Paul Schultz with us. David Geis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Well, those weather, that weather must have been really rough. Yeah, every year we get that one beautiful snowstorm in April, which we'd look forward to. So we had it. Oh, we also, I'll bet you did. We also have Eric Light with us, Corleone's artistic director. Hi, Eric. Hello. This sounds like it's going to be an amazing show. It's incredible. We started this Van Man Festival a few years ago. We've had some remarkable guests, but uh, none closer to my heart than this group. Because, and why is that? Well, because 25 years ago with uh, three other buddies, uh, I started this group. Uh, it was just a group of guys getting together, basically in college, just to sing for fun on the weekends. And now it's become one of the, the, the major ensembles of the United States. And uh, I feel like I don't have children, but I, I feel like a proud papa. <laughs> Teared up right there. Uh, we're actually going to give people a bit of a performance coming up in a few minutes here on the show. But David, let me ask you, what is what is it like performing with Cantus? What kind of work and effort goes into that? That's a great question. One of the really unique things about Cantus as an ensemble is that we are entirely collaborative. So each one of us, there's eight of us in the group, and we all have equal artistic buy-in to the product and uh, one of the other unique things about the way is the way that we program so when you come and see Contus perform you're not necessarily going to hear three songs about roses three German songs something like that <laughs> could we that like, happen does that happen in it other does ensembles happen sometimes like, yeah, yeah occasionally <laughs> not such as good ensembles <laughs> perhaps well it's just a different thing. Right. But one of the that's one of the things that makes us unique because it allows us, when we're telling stories and we have a narrative arc, to program songs that are very different right next to each other. In one of our touring shows right now, we have a Beethoven piece that goes directly into a Dave Matthews Band song. And it's a really one of, I think, it's my favorite humor. moments. It's yes, good. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, it's, there's a lot of really unique things about Contus, and we're really excited to, to be here and sing in Vancouver. Paul, but, how do you develop that? Like, how do you decide what you're going to sing? Yeah, so... So we, we have a lot of meetings in addition to rehearsing. When we're home, we rehearse about five hours a day. When we're not touring, we're on the road about 100 days a year. 
Um, but we, we get together and we talk about what kind of story do we want to share. Our, our vision statement is to give voice to shared human experiences. And so we talk about now what, what, do we wanna, what kind of story do we want to tell. And then once we decide that, we all go out and try and find music that we think could tell a part of that story. And hopefully, like David was talking about, it's diverse in time period and style. And, and hopefully that helps drive home that message. That sounds like a lot of give and take. I mean, there's an eight-person yes. ensemble oh, yeah. <laughs> here. Yes. One person brings in a song. Maybe not everybody likes it. How do you find that common ground? It is. You know, it's a, it's really a, a challenge in, in relationships um, and in communication. And, and uh, I think it's incredibly rewarding, the amount of buy-in that we each have, because mm-hmm. we have to be so engaged with our colleagues um, and, and working to make our best art every day. Um, but it, it is also, there's so many opportunities to be frustrated with folks. We travel together. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's We're lots like of family, little things truly. that happen. So you have to find a way to be able to give your colleagues notes in rehearsal. You know, David, you're a little flat today. <laughs> um, Never happens. And, and try and take, try and not read into that or bring context from other parts of your life. And that's, that's a lesson that I think we all have to deal with. I think you guys would make a great reality TV show. It would be interesting. We would. <laughs> I would watch that. <laughs> Eric, what is so appealing? to people do you think about listening to music perform this way well i think the the chamber aspect of what contus the chamber music aspect of what contus brings to the table is is just so important and that was right right away there from the, from from the founding of 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 mm. the uh, on the of the ensemble and so i'm uh, I, I think that uh there's a sense of vulnerability as well as strength that you see in ensemble like that. And it's something um, that I've even tried to... Corleone is a very different animal. Uh, 60... And I mean animal. Uh, 60, <laughs> <laughs> 60 voices, you know, an amateur group. But um, those those similar t- uh, traits of uh, creating those that spaces for the vulnerability as well as the strength that you would sort of expect from male voices, um, I think it's a really potent combination. It's the immediacy of the music too, isn't Indeed. it? Is yeah. it that it's just there's nothing between you and hearing that music? Acapella music is kind of uh, it, it's truly magic. I mean, someone goes hmm, and many groups can then sing for an hour. That's and just yeah. drawing these sounds out of which was that which was nothing, and I, I find that. Um, that whole the whole act of, of making, especially acapella music, um, to be quite magical. David, when did you know that you wanted to do this for a living? That is such a good question. I mean, we get asked that a lot, and I think that you sort of never know. A lot of times, you sort of will fall into something. I auditioned for Contus when I was coming out of grad school, and it was really at the, that audition day and seeing the camaraderie and kind of the way that Contus uniquely puts music together. Yeah. I left that audition day being like, oh, this is something that I would be so happy and grateful to get to do. How, so, often, yeah. how often do you accept new members? Like, how often does that happen? It we, depends a little bit. Um, there's turnover, maybe on average, you know, one or two people every one or two years. Um, and so we, we hold auditions every year no matter what. And then when someone decides to move on, we often will, will pull from that pool of people. Excellent. Okay, so we're going to give some tickets away here. Awesome. And then I understand you're going to perform for us. We are. We're going to sing a song by Billy Joel, which we love, called Lullaby. Really? Mm-hmm. So you really do run the gamut. Like we can hear. Oh yes. Everybody's nodding their head, going, "Oh yeah." What we is sing the everything. most? <laughs> what is the most eclectic thing that you've ever had in the repertoire? We've got a. Well, we're performing a song called Twitter Song. Um, this uh, for this touring program, which mm-hmm. is which is pretty hysterical. It's a lot of fun. 
Yeah, I think it's just like seeing the juxtaposition between pieces in our concerts. It's very different, and it's exciting, and it keeps it fresh. So I think that in itself is sort of eccentric. All right, I and look this, forward to the performance. Yep. Yeah, this arrangement is actually, don't tell anyone, but it's originally done by Eric Light when he was in the group. So uh, I can't keep that kind of calling it back. <laughs> but right now, we have a performance from Cantus to give you a bit of a preview of what you can expect. Here you go. Thank you. 